Angel Shang. And I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 31st, 2019. Coming up for New Year's Eve, we have a sampling of the top science news of the past year and the past decade. Perhaps the biggest story of 2019 was that scientists obtained an image of a black hole. Astronomers have known for a long time that black holes exist. Black holes are enormous, sometimes as big as our solar system, and have so much density that nothing, not even light, can escape. Astronomers can observe the effect of their gravity on surrounding objects, but imaging the black hole itself, that is difficult because, by definition, a black hole emits no light. Also, because of their extreme gravity, black holes have a lot of objects, even stars, swirling around them, obscuring their view. So how do you image a black hole, Angel? Well, astronomers observed that the hot, swirling gases close to a giant black hole's edge, which they call the event horizon, glow at many wavelengths, including millimeter-sized waves. These are short radio waves that can penetrate the gas and the dust surrounding the black hole. A a technique known as Very Long Baseline Interferometry, or VLBI, combined data from eight radio telescopes spread all over the world. This took an enormous international effort and sophisticated data analysis and antenna technology. Putting all of this data together from around the globe was like having a bigger telescope than currently available. So basically, you take a picture using radio waves instead of light? Yes. And to get as clear an image as possible, the astronomers focused on a black hole in a neighboring galaxy, 53 million light years from Earth. This is a thousand times bigger than the black hole in our own Milky Way galaxy. The image shows a ring of light surrounding a hole at the center of this galaxy. The team is now adding more dishes around the world and is hoping to make a movie of a black hole. Wow, what would a movie of a black hole show? It would show the black hole sucking in material, such as a star. A team member said the first glimpse of the image alone was like looking at the gates of hell. I can't imagine what the movie will look like. I'm sure it'll look like hell. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So other science news is findings on the Chicxulub impact crater. It was 66 million years ago when a 10-kilometer-wide asteroid hit the planet in water off of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. This is the Chicxulub impact crater. The force of the impact was approximately 10 billion atomic bombs, one of the most consequential planetary events we've ever had. The impact crater is now about 193 kilometers wide. The blast ignited trees and plants thousands of miles away. A massive tsunami hundreds of meters high was triggered and moved away from the crater. 70% of life went extinct and everything larger than 60 pounds died. We know this from fossil records. But exactly how and when they died and how quickly ecosystems recovered wasn't as clear. So what's new? A group of researchers extracted a sediment core from the impact site, this time on the peak ring. The peak ring is the ring of mountains created in a crater moments after an impact event. The core that they extracted was 835 meters deep, and 135 and 130 meters of this was deposited the day the asteroid hit. But what can you tell from the core about extinction? 
Well, what's important is in the core is also what they did not find. So they found no sulfur, even though sulfate-containing rocks surround this region. This is important because the sulfur at the site is believed to have vaporized, creating a sulfurous aerosol, causing rapid global cooling and darkness, which is what caused the large animals to go extinct from the food chain collapse. This confirms existing theories about extinction. Also in the Yucatan Peninsula area, the sediment core samples indicated that it took 30,000 years before the marine ecosystem was back up and running again. That's actually considered a quick turnaround. Wow, Angel, there was a lot going on in space science during the teens. But you know, there was a lot going on too in our inner space of genetic history, and that is the human genetic history, and how that's shaping our ideas about human evolution. Let's start with some of the important fossil finds. Way back in 2010, a new fossil from South Africa showed that as long as two million years ago, some of our ancestors were beginning to spend a lot of time walking upright. This is way earlier than had been thought. A few years later, and get this, in the very same cave, another fossil hominid was discovered that's kind of a mosaic of some of the ancient and more modern body types. And this newcomer was still around as recently as 235,000 years ago, which is just before us so-called modern humans showed up on the scene. But didn't we already know these dates? Well, not really. These findings widened the time window of hominid existence. Then, in the last decade, something really cool came on the scene, DNA sequencing of fossil remains. Since 2010, thousands of what researchers call ancient genomes have been sequenced, including from the oldest intact skeleton in North America, which was from a girl who died in Mexico about 13,000 years ago. So why is this fossil genome newsworthy? Well, this girl's DNA, like that from thousands of others which have been sequenced, fills in the story of human migration and replacement. For example, using these data, it's possible to trace the tracks of the earliest immigrants, human immigrants, into North America. The genetic data shows them to be most closely related to people from Northeast Asian populations. And then the very first Neanderthal genome was sequenced in 2010. Now, many of us know that from 1% to 4% of our DNA can come from these ancient Neanderthal relatives. And another of our ancient relatives was discovered also in 2010. The Denisovans were identified by sequencing DNA from fossilized, a fossilized pinky bone, one little bone, found in the Denisova cave in Siberia. Fragments of this Denisovan DNA persist in people across Asia, suggesting that the group was once widespread and actually interbred with both Neanderthals and modern humans. One important piece of this genetic heritage adapts modern Tibetans to life at high altitude, suggesting that the Denisovans lived in a variety of environments. And just this year, a new Denisovan fossil was found, and collagen, which is a connective tissue protein, was extracted for DNA analysis. The researchers did a really cool analysis that let them speculate that she would have looked a lot like a Neanderthal with a wide pelvis sloping forehead and protruding lower jaw. She probably had a wider face than modern humans or Neanderthals and a longer arch of teeth along her jawbone. This kind of analysis shows how far we've come in the type of information we can extract from DNA sequences. 
So some of us have not only Neanderthal, Neanderthal DNA, we also have Denisovan DNA in us? Yeah, that's right. And the Denisovan DNA is so recent that we really haven't begun analyzing people to the extent that many of us are familiar with, like with respect to 23andMe analysis. So in the next decade, look for more of this kind of analysis. Hmm. Okay. Artificial intelligence has made gains compared to humans once again. We know back in 2007 that AI developed a program to never lose at checkers. In 2016, another AI program defeated the best humans at Go, a board game that is much more complicated than checkers. This year, AI beat some of the world's best players in poker, Texas Hold'em, six players. Poker is a stiffer challenge for AI because players cannot see their opponent's cards. There were six players, and there was a lot of randomness to the game. The computer program Pluribus played one trillion games against itself and developed a basic strategy for various kinds of situations. For example, playing for an inside straight. Wait, what's an inside straight? That is when you have four out of five cards needed for a straight, with one card missing in the middle. For example, three, four, five, seven. For each specific hand, the computer could also think through how the cards would likely play out. In 20,000 hands with six players, it outperformed 15 top-level players, as measured by average winnings per hand. With multiple opponents, forecasting becomes really complex, so Pluribus simply learned what was most effective in any given situation. The program was able to teach itself to play while running on a single server with 64 processors. Well, that's pretty impressive because basically the computer is unlike the way we work. We kind of put things together and process them in um, pattern analysis methods. But the computer basically looked at all kinds of possible outcomes, which is pretty amazing. But how can we apply this advance in AI? Well, this type of card game, when each player sees some cards but doesn't know what cards the other players are holding, is more like real life. So this algorithm has many implications. How to make the best decision when the information we have is imperfect. So before long, maybe we'll be asking machines for advice. Well, I won't mind that. But this year... Microbiologists in Japan succeeded in growing a mysterious microbe from deep-sea sediments and sequenced its genome. This finding is helping them understand the origin of eukaryotes. What are eukaryotes, you say? Well, these are basically all living things except bacteria, and of course includes us. The novel organism belongs to a group of microbes called Asgards, which are not bacteria, but a completely separate branch of life called archaea. So just to back up, for a long time now, taxonomists, those are biologists that group living things into categories, taxonomists thought there were three branches of life, the bacteria, the archaea that the Asgards belong to, and then the eukaryotes. But this new research has implications for that taxonomic grouping. So these new things, the Asgards, had been identified only from DNA fragments isolated from deep-sea sediments and some other extreme environments. What? Okay, so the Asgards, these critters have never been collected and analyzed before? No, in fact, a lot of organisms that live in extreme environments like deep-sea ocean and... Um, hot vents and hot springs. We've never collected the living organism, but by collecting samples from these places, we can identify DNA fragments and therefore identify the presence of these organisms. 
Hmm. Kind of like telling someone someone has been in your yard from footprint from from the footprints they leave behind. Yeah, exactly. And surprisingly, the DNA from the Asgards contains genes formerly thought to be found only in eukaryotes. That's things like us, organisms with cells that have nuclei and organelles such as mitochondria. Further DNA analyses indicated that the Asgards, or maybe one of their ancient relatives, may have given rise to the eukaryotes. That radical idea would shrink the domains of life from three, remember those are the archaea, the eukaryotes, and the bacteria, to just two, the bacteria and the archaea with ourselves, the eukaryotes, being reduced to just a subset of the archaea. The researchers also found that Asgard seemed to grow best in association with certain bacteria and that it forms short tentacles that might engulf bacterial companions. If so, that could explain how an Asgard acquired the microbial guests that become that became mitochondria, the starting point of the development of the eukaryotes. I can't emphasize this enough, how important the evolution of mitochondria and other organelles are. It allowed for creatures like us, complex, multicellular creatures, to evolve. So this is really pretty startling evidence for our very earliest origins. And then another ancient organism came out in the news in the last decade. The first outbreak of Ebola virus was seen in 1976 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And since then, it's been popping up in sub-Saharan Africa and killing over 50% of its victims. The high fever, uncontrollable bleeding, and damage to many body systems explain the high mortality and difficulty of treating Ebola. And just this month, the FDA announced the results of the first large field trial of a vaccine for Ebola. Simply conducting this trial was a notable achievement in and of itself. It was carried out in makeshift treatment units in the midst of a devastating outbreak and an area of violent conflict. The vaccine, called Ervibo, is given in a single injection. It then generates a quick immune response with protection occurring in about 10 days. It's a live, attenuated virus. You mean people are being injected with a weak version of the Ebola virus? No, this is a little different. The virus they're being injected with is a carrier that was genetically modified to include just one single Ebola protein, which means that like other viruses, it can get into your cells and infect them, but because it's been genetically modified, it won't make them sick. But because it does carry an Ebola protein, your immune system can see something that's characteristic of the Ebola virus without it being the whole virus. And then your immune system can mount a response against it. So this is a really safe way to prevent a viral infection. Ervobo, the the vaccine, has now been given to more than 250,000 people. And get this, it was 97% effective in the trial. That's great. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, we have a few honorable mentions that were important. Um, First is uh, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft relayed images of an important object from the far reaches of the solar system. This is 1.6 kilometers beyond Pluto, and this is nine years after the New Horizon launch. This is the farthest flyby ever conducted by a spacecraft. The formation is called Arakoth and is about only 22 miles long. This formation may hold clues to how planets form. The principal investigator, Alan Stern, is from the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. That's pretty cool, Angel, that 
the principal investigator is right here in Boulder. But before we go on, can you just talk a little bit about what the clues are about planetary formation? Why is this um, asteroid? I guess, well, it's not really an asteroid, is it? What would what would we call it? A planetoid? Um, it's called, uh, well, they're calling it a contact binary because it looks like there's two pieces sort of stuck together at a neck. And they're calling it two lumpy pieces of pancakes stuck together. If I look at it, it looks like a melted snowman. But um, this is this formation in this way, where you have two p- pieces coming together, this contact binary, may hold clues to how other planets form. So, because things just bump into each other and glom together like the two parts of the snowman, and then eventually more things coalesce, and eventually you get a planet. That's what they're investigating, and this, these are the kind of images that are coming from New Horizon as it's getting further and further away, the farthest flyby ever conducted. So we're moving everything backwards in time. We're moving human evolution back. We're moving um, eukaryotic evolution back, and now we're even moving planetary formation back. That's pretty cool. That is amazing. Okay. Um, Another honorable mention is gravitational wave measurements. Einstein predicted the existence of gravitational waves in 1916 as part of his general theory of relativity. When cataclysmic collisions occur in outer space, for example, a neutron star being swallowed swallowed up by a black hole, general relativity predicts that there will be small rumblings or gravitational waves. Einstein doubted that we would be able to measure them. However, a century later, scientists have built two massive detectors to measure these. The detectors are located in Washington State and Louisiana. They are separated by thousands of miles in order to be able to coordinate and detect these ripples coming in from deep space as they pass through Earth. Each detector looks like a big L made up of two tunnels about two and a half miles long, and it's designed so that if a gravitational wave passes by, it will stretch space along one direction of the tunnel and contract space along the direction of the other. The stretching and contracting changes the tunnel's length by a tiny amount, and that change can be detected by lasers. As you can imagine, eliminating all of the interferences is an enormous challenge, but somehow scientists were able to do this. In 2015, researchers detected the collision of two black holes, and in 2017, researchers observed two neutron stars merging. And in fact, in 2017, the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to scientists for these measurements. Those are some pretty amazing measurements, especially those gravitational waves. I mean, something that happens so far away, exerting an influence on tunnels in the United States, that's pretty remarkable. I'm amazed they can measure this. It really is something. Even Einstein thought they couldn't do it, but they did. Yeah, wow. Pretty amazing. So on the other end of the size spectrum, the gene editing system called CRISPR has revolutionized molecular genetics in the last decade. The enzymes that are utilized in this system were first identified in bacteria, where they're used in kind of a a bacterial immune system. You might not know this, but bacterial can get infected with viruses. And when they do, I mean, the the bacteria is just a single cell. It doesn't have an immune system. So the way that bacteria defend themselves against viruses is they have these enzymes that can recognize viruses as being foreign proteins and chop them up. But then they want to hang on to some of that viral DNA. Just like our immune systems have a memory, the bacteria have a memory by hanging on to little pieces of virus DNA. So they put them in certain places in 
their own bacterial genome. And then if a virus comes along again, the bacterial enzymes can match the virus that they've seen before to the one that's trying to infect them now, and they can chop it up in the same way. So this system was first identified in bacteria in about 2010, maybe 2009, and researchers at Berkeley co-opted the system to allow them to cut and paste human DNA. This means that you can identify a gene you're interested in in humans, cut it out of a normal section of DNA and paste it into exactly the same place in a cell with an abnormal or a mutant form of the DNA. So this opens up a whole new line for gene therapy Hmm. because you can actually put the gene in the right place. Earlier versions of gene therapy used different methods of delivering the normal gene and it would get inserted into a wrong place into the um, person that needed the therapy. And sometimes this resulted in either no cure for the disease or in worst case scenarios, the development of cancers, which in a few horrible instances actually killed the patient being treated. So anyway, this is a, a, a really cool new application for gene therapy. And we're in, in the next decade, look for more diseases that will be treated this way. But this past year, 2019, saw the very first use of this method to genetically engineer human fetuses, which was done in China. It was a very controversial experiment. Um, the babies that resulted were just born this past year. The researcher said that he was trying to prevent them from um, acquiring the AIDS virus. So apparently... He did this outside of the the system in China, and just this week he was sentenced to three years in prison for his experiment. Oh, I did hear about that. That does sound like a, a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a big problem for him, and the Chinese government is taking action against him. So that's all for our news of news recap of the year. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. Beth and I jointly produced the show. And I engineered. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Angel Shang. And I'm Beth Bennett. It's 8.56 on Tuesday morning, New Year's Eve. We might get some snow coming in later this evening. And for now, stay tuned, as always, at this time on Tuesday morning for the wit and wisdom of Alan Watts. Three, two, one, zero. Got plans, New Year's Eve? Get down with KGNU and kick off 2020 in style. We'll have an eclectic music mix for the soundtrack to your New Year's Eve party starting at 7 p.m. and going all the way to the wee hours in the morning. 
Join the Groove Thief, Beverly Grant, Patrick Mendoza, Chris Nathan, Dee Brock Dave, Mariah Cohen, Iris Berkeley, and start the new decade off on a high note. India, under its Prime Minister Narendra Modi, has moved far to the right. How and why is this happening? On the next edition of Alternative Radio, hear Arundhati Roy on Modi's India. That's Alternative Radio, Wednesday evenings at 6, right here on Community Radio, KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. Seeking an unusual holiday present? Advanced tickets are now on sale for KGNU and CFCZ's annual Mardi Gras. Saturday, February 1st at the Avalon Ballroom in Boulder. Music from original Zydeco hipster Curly Taylor, a costume contest, Cajun food, spirits, voodoo alley, and a dance lesson are all part of the festivities. Early bird tickets of just $25 available now through December 31st at KGNU.org. This is KGNU, Boulder, Denver and Fort Collins. Coming up in half an hour, we'll begin another morning of great music to round out 2019. That's in the morning sound alternative. And at seven o'clock this evening, we're kicking off a special evening of music, our New Year's Eve celebration, an annual event. Do stay tuned. That begins at seven this evening. Don't forget, you can subscribe to several KGNU podcasts, including The Morning Magazine, our monthly radio book club and How on Earth, the science show that comes your way every Tuesday mornings. Just some of the podcasts and as well as that, our new podcasts, a collaboration with the 